0: Yeah, so this is our Don reading group. We're continuing our reading of Imagination and Invention. Um, we have a little bit of uncertainty about the page where we left off last time for some annoying reasons that we don't need to get into, but um, we're, we've determined that we're pretty sure we're at the top of page 175. So that's where we're going to start from if anyone is following along, uh, 175 in that translation. Um, so last time we looked at, um, let's see, yeah, the... Um, so we're still, we're still in part four, um, and within part four, we're on section one, the creation of technical objects, um, and so again, this is um, connected with his other book, uh, On the Mode of Existence of Technical Objects, that we read a few years ago, um, and one of the uh, key ideas that he develops in that work, and that he's sort of pointing at it here, uh, without, I think, using the uh, exact term that he... Introduces there is this this notion of concretization. Um, so I, I don't think he uses that term in this text, but he he's uh, pretty clearly pointing to that concept. Uh, and so this for Simon Don concretization is how technical progress happens. So how um, how something that is at a, a more sort of a primitive state of technical development uh, becomes more technically sophisticated is uh, is is this notion of concretization and. What this means essentially is that um, so a, a technical object is more concrete insofar as its components each contribute multiple functions to the functioning of the whole. Um, so a, a more abstract technical object um, has um, each each component each part of the technical object has one determined function, um, and and so it just sort of contributes one function, and then any other effects that it um, that it has on other parts of the technical objects are like, um, sort of undesired, uh, noise or friction or, or things like that. Um, whereas in more concrete technical objects, all of, all of these effects, all of the different interactions between the parts are incorporated into the functioning of the whole, the whole technical object. So, so the, there's no, or there, it minimizes the, the role of sort of undesired interactions between the parts friction and noise and, um, uh, anything along those lines um, so one of the examples that he gives in um in on the mode of existence of technical objects is um this kind of turbine that um uh uses the uh the the water to uh, so so the turbine of course um uh, turns in, as a result of the water um pressure uh and then it also uses the water for cooling at the same time so uh, um, and I don't remember all the details. Uh, I'd have to, you know, check the, the book again. But um, so instead of having just one function of turning the turbine, um, the water plays uh, a cooling role at the same time. Uh, so it's not it, there. There are multiple different um, functions that that the one component of the technical object uh, uh, is are playing at the same time. And another example is in the case of internal combustion engines. Um, I think I mentioned this last time. Uh, so early internal combustion engines had uh, 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 like a radiator or some other means of dissipating heat, so that the engine doesn't overheat and and seize up. Um, so th- this can be like a an air radiator, so it just dissipates heat into the air, or a water radiator where um, water flows over the engine and and absorbs heat and and, and then dissipates it. Um, but in in any case, the ra- the radiator just contributes a certain amount of heat um, dissipation. So you can uh, you can essentially substitute the radiator with any other object that um, that dissipates the same amount of heat, and it doesn't really change the functioning of the of the engine. Uh, but then, in more concrete, more sophisticated uh, internal combustion engines, the cylinders themselves have um, uh, uh, instead of just being pure geometrical cylinders, they have veins uh, built into them. So, like little um, outcroppings, I guess. Um, And what this does is, first, it increases the surface area of the cylinder, so it means that the cylinder can dissipate heat more effectively. Uh, And then second, the the shape of the cylinder now with these outcroppings is actually um, structurally stronger than the pure cylindrical structure. Um, And and what that means, in turn, is that um, you can get a cylinder with the same strength using uh, a thinner um, wall of the cylinder. Uh, and, and that uh, again allows for more heat dissipation. Um, so these these veins in the wall of the cylinder serve a structural function and a heat dissipation function. And and then the structure, the structural function also contributes to heat dissipation in turn. Um, so they have a, a sort of multifunctional role. And Simon Wong compares this to the the way that um, a living organism functions. So in a living organism, there are Organs that are specialized in various functions, but at the same time, each organ has multiple different functions within the functioning of the body, and the way that the, that it interacts with all the other organs um, and systems in the body is more than just contributing one uh, sort of isolated function. And so, this is why um, it's it's very difficult to create like synthetic organs, for example, um, like uh, to produce something, uh, a device that can play all the roles that um, the heart or the kidneys or whatever um, play in the human body is, is much more difficult than just reproducing one function. Um, uh, and so, uh, again, the te- the concrete technical object approximates to the living object. It, it never quite reaches it for Simondon, but um, it it sort of heads in that direction. Uh, so we saw a few examples uh, or a few um passages discussing these types of uh, relationships um, in the last session. So we looked at um, the arch as an example of this uh, concretization. So uh, in an arch, each stone, um, Simon Donne describes it as each stone playing the role of wall and ceiling at the same time. So instead of having one portion of the structure, which serves as vertical support, um, uh, like like a wall, and then another p- portion of the structure that serves as um uh, sort of covering or protection against the elements. instead you have each um, component of the wall, each stone that makes up the the arch uh, has both functions at the same time it it contributes both vertical and horizontal um, structural forces to the whole the the functioning of the arch and the arch is uh, uh, sort of another aspect of concretization that uh, is exemplified by the arch because um, the arch is sort of self um, reinforcing in the sense that the the action of gravity um, uh, instead of sort of pulling down the arch, like in the case of uh, um, a structure with a wall and ceiling, um, the, the the action of gravity actually pulls the stones closer together um, because of the shape of the stones. Uh, so the the action of gravity makes the arch um, cohere more and and be more stable. Um, and again, this is characteristic of concrete technical objects in general. Uh, so because Uh, an abstract technical object has all these undesired um, interactions between the components uh, like friction and so on Um, it means that the functioning of that object tends to destroy that object um, over time and then you have to sort of mitigate that by introducing things like radiators Um, whereas a more concrete technical object because all all the different um, elements of the uh, of each component are incorporated into the functioning of the object, it uh it has less of a tendency to destroy itself. It it becomes more sort of self-sustaining. Uh and so this is um uh and and so what the lesson that we sort of draw from this um according to Simon Dono is that we um there's a kind of individuation process of a technical object as it becomes more concrete. So it becomes more and more of an individual, a, a sort of um self-subsistent reality uh that doesn't depend on uh uh, being sort of protected from its own functioning in the way that a, an abstract technical object does. Um, and then I think the last thing I'll mention here is this sort of more, um, so after uh, you know some passages of more sort of technical description, we get this more philosophical passage where Simondon um, uses the term dialectics again, um, and we've sort of commented on this uh, uh, a few times throughout the, the readings that we've been doing, that Simondon has a sort of ambiguous relationship with the term dialectics. Um, he sometimes calls his own uh, philosophy dialectical. Other times he, he criticizes um, what he calls dialectics. Uh, and, but here he, he does describe his own work as dialectical or he, he criticizes other views as non-dialectical. Um, so this is just another passage that we can sort of um, point to when we want to understand the, the relationship between uh, Simondon and dialectics. And then, and that makes a good transition to the next bit that we're going to start with today, because he's going to talk about Marx. um, And uh, of course, there's you know the whole question of dialectics in Marxism. Um, So, uh, if I can get someone to read from page one seventy five, the the first full paragraph on one seventy five, and yeah, just read like uh, uh, I guess onto one seventy seven because it's like one of these long
1: paragraphs. I can read. Moreover, this amplification effect through the recruitment of natural effects within technical invention has practical and social consequences that parallel its theoretical consequences. The mechanism of economic surplus value that Marx describes in Capital expresses in the sphere of human work one of the consequences of the implementation of technical inventions that enabled the Industrial Revolution. This means, this means that the, work, the labor of worker operators was incorporated in the schema of inventions and was recruited as a natural effect. But the amplification effect is not restricted to the domain of operator labor. It is merely visible in a privileged way in this domain, a particular case greatly concerning human societies. Nor is amplifying dialectical evolution only social, only human, social, and political. It characterizes the entire domain of objects created by invention, not only In their relation with human society but also in their relation with nature through the intermediary of created objects the relationship of humans to nature is subjected to an amplifying dialectical evolution whose active grounding lies in invention effectively expressing the cycle of the image by the expansion of the terminal phase of creative invention outside of the individual A complete study of the applications of this conception of the technical object created by invention exceeds the scope of this study of quote-unquote general psychology, for not only the consequences, but also the conditions of the genesis of an invention imply collective contents and historical aspects, together with the specific way in which knowledge and power are transmitted in the form of constituted objects or production processes, and with the exigencies of the conditions of reception, which are not just economical but cultural, see on the mode of existence of technical objects. louis Goron has studied phenomena of diffusion, transmission, and transposition of techniques within the framework of ethnology, with complex phenomena such as those occurring when a population is presented with objects displaying a more advanced development than its own, metal tools imported into a stone tool culture. in l'homme l'homme et la matière, man and matter, and milieu et technique, milieus and techniques. From this point of view, our societies have posed the problem of the relation of recurrent information between the producer and the consumer, who is in truth an operator user and not a consumer when it comes to technical objects. A complete market study in this area should include the study of an invention's distribution channels. Since a technical object carries in itself both implicit and explicit information about its conditions of use and the condition and the choice of models. Conversely, the finalization of the features of a model by a manufacturer is a study not only of intrinsic but also of extrinsic compatibility, since it entails the adaptation of the object to a system of virtual uses that do not at all correspond to a univocal concept. Accordingly, uh, accordingly in the rural French milieu of small farms mixing polyculture farming and livestock, efficient production using agricultural machinery has long confronted the lack of adaptation of machines to the actual functions of labor. These machines, particularly tractors, were conceived in relation to an ideal use in flat areas with monoculture farming in large contiguous fields. Since such regions had been the first to cross the economical threshold of industrial machinery. The tractor was reinvented after 1950 in France for regions of polyculture farming on small mid sized farms, and it was quickly adopted, showing that for the most part it was not a matter of prejudice to be overcome or economic conditions yet to be obtained. In its new form, the tractor is no longer just agricultural, made to pull a plow, but becomes all at once a stationary generator of motive power. A road-ready vehicle with tires and higher speed and a universal support for tools directly fed with the mechanical power from the engine, creating a close compatibility between the towing effect and the power source effect. The invention of an intrinsic mode of compatibility between these two effects made the extrinsic compatibility possible by adapting the multifunctional tractor to a continuous spectrum of uses from either traction or engine power to both simultaneously. A similar study could be conducted on the automobile market in France. The failure of some models, the Renault-Paguette, is not caused by technical deficiencies, but by a deficiency of knowing with respect, to its, with respect to its necessary extrinsic compatibility, in particular its dual purposes, transporting people and things. The success of the 4L model conversely corresponds to a good study of the plurality of needs Uh, more generally the perfecting of a technical object in the direction of concretization in the enhancement enhancement of its level of internal compatibility produces an external adaptability that is termed quote unquote versatile in the u.s and may be compared to maybe compared to flexibility in the sense of the word in psychology The multifunctionality of uses corresponds to one of the essential functions of an invention as a creator of compatibility. The fact that an invention is a creator of objects plays an essential role here. Since an object can be a real synthesis, while the concepts of use and finality, univocal univocal and limited, remain abstract, they enable the organization of production of a thing towards a pre-established end but not the creation of an object as a materialization of an image, as a continuous spectrum linking extreme terms like the tractor and the engine or the car meant to transport people and the car meant to transport merchandise. The object can totalize and condense information gatherings that express needs, desires, and expectations. The recurrent circulation of information between production and virtual use makes the image and the created object communicate directly enabling a compatibilizing invention, while a conceptual definition according to finality deploys only a single-function abstraction, eschewing invention. For the same reason, a purely economic study of the genesis and use of technical objects is insufficient, since it does not account for their mode of existence, which is a result of an invention condensing in one object a sheaf of information containing, contained In the reality of an image that has reached the end of its becoming. Yeah, Uh, Simon Don knows a lot, but I think he could stand to—I don't know—take a class on like, uh, like basic writing compositions stuff, just to to learn to break up his paragraphs every once in a while. Um, But at least what I'm, what I got out of this section is that one of the essential aspects of the created object is that it has this virtual excess, which. Um, I guess internally uh, plays out in terms of this concretization process and externally, it has an external role as well, which uh, unites, I guess, disparate virtual compatibilities like the way that the same vehicle can be used uh, to transport people and to transport things. Um, and also it's broader than just a, a kind of economic surplus um because of its psychological origin or psychological and material origin i guess
0: yeah i think um yeah i mean there's a lot of different things in this paragraph or these couple paragraphs that we probably won't be able to cover um everything um but one so one of the things that he he sort of alludes to he doesn't really make this explicit um but he um he points to um the, in, on the mode of existence of technical objects, he criticizes um, classification of technical objects in terms of their uses. Um, um, so, like for example, if you if you take uh, technical objects in terms of uses, you would say like, that a mechanical clock and a digital clock are are both examples of a, of a use of you know, telling the time. Um, but in terms of the uh, actual functioning of these objects, of course, they're completely different. Um, and Simon Dole points out that a mechanical clock actually has a closer resemblance to a crossbow in terms of the functioning than it does to a digital clock. Um, uh, uh, So what he, so this classification in terms of uses um, sort of cuts across the grain of the um, real functioning of the technical objects. The technical essence is the the term that he uses. Um, But that doesn't mean of course that the use of the technical object is irrelevant. Um, uh, Obviously technical objects are produced for um, to be used in certain ways uh, and, and that use it sort of feeds back into the design of the technical object uh, and uh, so then when you're looking at the history of technical objects you have to, um, you have to evaluate not just you know, sort, of a, a sort of internal um, criterion of like how sophisticated or how good is this technical object just in isolation but you have to look at how it's adapted to the circumstances in which um, it's going to be uh, distributed uh, so he, he gives an example he, in this section of the tractor. Um, so early tractors are designed uh, primarily for the American market, where you have um, like farm, big farms in the prairies, uh, in the plains, that um, are you know primarily harvesting, used for plowing and harvesting grain. Uh, so you have monoculture, one one single crop on big flat fields, um, and and the tractor is adapted to this kind of um, environment. Uh, and and it's you know successful in this environment. But then in France, instead of uh, this type of farm, you have instead uh, much smaller farms that grow multiple different crops. Um, and the and the landscape is much less flat um, uh, and uh, the the fields might be separated. Um, they might be like instead of having one giant field, you have a, a, a bunch of small fields. Um, so the the early tractors are not really suitable for this kind of environment. And so you have to um, adapt the functioning of the tractor to enable it to play multiple roles um, that instead of just having this sort of pulling a plow function, um, it, it now can serve you know, a variety of different uh, functions. And and it does this not just by sort of adding a bunch of... It's not like a Swiss Army knife where you just have like a bunch of different tools in one sort of convenient container. Um, it's Instead, it's the tractor... The functioning of a tractor um, has to be sort of made more flexible so that it can be used in multiple different ways. Uh, and so this is like the other side of the um, the more sort of external side of the development of a technical object um, is this sort of enhanced flexibility. Uh, and, and you can see this maybe also in the the camera example that we saw a couple of sessions ago, um, in the sense that the more sophisticated scientific camera is also more flexible than the um, a sort of, um, mass produced camera that is used by tourists. Um, the, the tourist camera can only take pictures under, um, sort of average lighting and average distance of the object from the camera. Uh, whereas the scientific camera has much more flexibility in terms of lighting a distance, et cetera. Um, and, um, so this is like a, a sort of, um, adaptation to more circumstances that will be part of how, um, how the technical object evolves, uh, And, and of course, it depends on the exact um, uh, circumstances in the environment, Uh, like what what is this object used for? Um, uh, uh, You know, what sort of role does the object have to play in in various aspects of social and economic life? Um, And and that sort of feeds back on the design of the newer versions of the object, um, like in the case of the tractor, where... The, the the early tractors are not so being sold. Um farmers don't have much use for them in France. And uh and then so that sort of feeds back on the design of the object and then it, it um is made to be more flexible so that it, it can actually find use in France. And then maybe like another important point here is is that he he points out that um the resistance to the tractor in France or the lack of enthusiasm for the tractor in France, you you might suggest like a one sort of easy explanation would just be to say, oh these uh, French peasants or French farmers uh, on these small farms are are you know conservative and reactionary. They don't like understand or they're afraid of progress or afraid of technology or whatever. Um, but of course, the fact that um, a few years later they do adopt a tractor once its uh, design is adapted to their circumstances shows that it wasn't like technology as such that they were opposed to. It was the um, the form of of the technical object that was not um, suitable for their circumstances. So um, this sort of easy form of explanation in terms of um, sort of cultural, ideological aspects um, that that sort of prevent the diffusion of an object. Um, uh, a lot of the time this explanation is like too simplistic, um, even if there may there may be some truth to it in certain uh, in certain cases, there may be you know resistance to technical objects just uh, out of like a fear of change or something like that. But uh, it, in general, it's not enough to um, to sort of explain why a certain technical object didn't um, get diffused in, in a certain region just to say that, oh, people are afraid of change. And maybe if I can add to this, as isn't like directly in what Simon Don was saying here, but I would suggest that um, like if you appeal to this kind of cultural explanation and say people are afraid of change or whatever, um, I mean people everywhere and in all times are somewhat afraid of change or afraid of certain kinds of change. Um, uh, and then in other respects, they're also, you know, excited about change and, uh, you know, want certain kinds of change. Um, but the question is always like, what is it about this particular change that makes some people that, that makes it more frightening or more, uh, exciting or, um, like why is it that in this particular time and place that, the fear of change wins out and then some other time in place, the, the um, enthusiasm for change wins out. Um, so you, you have to look at it like at the particular level, you can't just appeal to like a general fear of change uh, because that would apply to any situation. And so it doesn't like differentiate between the places where the, the change is accepted and places where it's not accepted. Um, so I think, I think what Simon Don is sort of pointing towards is a more differentiated uh Historical analysis of the diffusion of technical objects and the way that that diffusion uh, feeds back on the design of the technical object. Um, so you have to look at individual times and places and, and sort of analyze, you know, why um, why this technical object that was maybe more sophisticated in certain respects didn't win out, uh, and and one that was less sophisticated um, ended up ended up being much more popular. Um, so like a, a sort of classic example of this is the the VHS versus Betamax um, uh, competition in the 1980s so these were two different formats for video um, reporting um, uh, of course uh, most most people will be familiar with VHS as the the or people who are as old as I am I guess will be familiar with VHS um, yeah and, and so in in certain technical respects beta was actually um, superior to VHS in terms of like picture quality and so on um, but uh it was Sony that produced it. Um and they didn't want to license the format to any other companies. They they essentially only Sony could use this beta format. Um uh and um whereas VHS, I forget who actually developed it, but um they allowed other companies to use the VHS format, and that meant that uh, there were just much more or many more VHS tapes available. Um you you could get like any movie you wanted, and not just Sony movies on on D H S. Um, and so, even though Beta was superior in certain technical respects, um, the the sort of diffusion of it meant that D H S. ended up winning out, and Beta was discontinued after a couple of years. Um, uh, yeah. And um, uh, yeah, and so like the the choice between Beta and D H S. was not based just on like purely technical um, factors, like how how much fidelity uh uh or like the image quality or sound quality or anything like that. It it would have to do with the um economic factors of um of uh the distribution system as well. Uh yeah and there was a similar type of uh, competition between Blu-ray and HD DVDs. Um uh obviously they're they're both semi-obsolete at this point. Um but uh um yeah the like again you had the you know competing formats and the um decision between the two had to do as much with, um, um, you know, the, the distribution networks that they were part of as, as it did with the, uh, actual technical differences between the formats.
1: This idea of the, um, technical object needing to, um, not perfectly align with the finality of the concept kind of reminds me of, um, the critique of judgment and the points that Kant makes, in that book about how a work of art can't be made in accordance with a uh, determinate rule. Um, I know there are very different things going on here, but um, I don't know. Maybe we could see the work of art for Kant as needing this kind of indeterminate virtual reserve in a similar way um, to how Simon Don thinks that uh, this, Capacity for concretization or external um, external relations is necessary for the technical object.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting comparison. Um, I think maybe the way I would make the connection is in terms of um, invention. Uh, like there's a, there's a, a role of creativity in both the production of an artwork and the production of uh, a new technical object. Uh, and. Precisely because there is this creativity involved, you can't have a rule for how to do either one. Um, Like you can't you can't say here's how to invent a technical object. You can give like sort of pointers of like um, how to uh, sort of spark creativity. Um, You can you can also give lots of technical knowledge about like how um, electronics work and things like that that will help you in developing your invention. But like you can't give a, a rule for like this is how to invent a new technical object. Um, in the same way that you can't give a rule for how to create a, an artwork, um, like you have, uh, uh, like, you know, some, some like famous authors write texts about like how to write or, or whatever, but like, you can't just sort of study that text and follow its, its, um, precepts and then become a great writer. Um, you, you, you have to, you know, have some new idea or some creativity of your own, um. Uh, and so, I think in both cases, like, there's the creativity uh, aspect. It means you're, you're actually creating something new and not just sort of following a, a pre-established rule to, um, to uh, you know, uh, create something following a, a preset pattern.
2: Actually, actually like, uh, as I missed, like, uh, a lot of, like, the, um, a lot of sessions, so probably, like, uh, I'm missing the point. But my, my question is that here, technical objects are limited to uh, something tangible and visible. because like I, I thought of the case of Viagra like like uh, they, that that medicine by Pfizer actually invented to to, to cure some kind of thing. I mean they, they, there was one purpose at first but they, at the end of the day it turned out it works for some other symptoms like the you know like heart heart disease or some kind of like a cure some symptoms when somebody goes up to the high mountain, something like that. So what I want to say here is like, if we are not, you can, we don't have to think of just only to, I mean, limited to like a, a here, technical objects to like a something tangible and visible. If we, can we like apply like a, something biological here? Like if we apply something biological to the human body system mechanism, then also we can think of a multifunctionality as well. It, does it make sense or not?
0: Yeah, I think, th- I think that makes sense. Um... Yeah, the Viagra example is interesting because um, I, I haven't really looked into this, um, like, independently, but um, I've seen that some people talk about how Viagra was actually originally developed for menstrual cramps. Um, and for whatever reason, when they were testing the, um, the um, uh, safety of, of the, the drug, uh, they had male subjects as well. Um, and that's when they discovered the... Um, more well-known effect of viagra Um, and then they they decided to abandon the um, menstrual cramps um uh sort of um uh purpose of this drug and they marketed it as an erectile dysfunction drug um um yeah and um uh so yeah in this case it has multiple functions um and but the the use of the the drug um is determined by economic factors of, you know, what is most profitable for um, for the, the manufacturer. Uh, and and in this case, it seems like the, I mean, it's not something I know well, but um, it seems like the diffusion network is actually sort of restricting the um, uh, design of this technical object. I, I, I think we can treat a, a, a drug as a technical object in Simondon's sense. Um, um, yeah so like the fact that there's this very profitable existing um diffusion network of this drug means that the manufacturers have little incentive to research other um um other sort of possible applications of this drug or or ways they could modify it to actually maybe address menstrual cramps or other the other um uh symptoms that you mentioned um uh, altitude sickness and things like that um yeah so um i guess I mean Simon Don talks about the sort of the positive side of the way that um technical objects can be adapted to serve new functions and to um to be inserted into new networks but um there's probably also a uh, um yeah uh, a negative side that you know uh being inserted into certain types of networks of distribution can mean that a technical object doesn't get developed when it maybe it could
2: be You know what, I'm thinking like uh, it could uh, have to do with uh, like a potential uh, like a Kind of like uh, every technical object has its own potential, which can be um, can be um, revealed or it cannot be revealed, like by anyone. Like it depends on like uh, an individual who can find uh, the uh, the functions, like uh, further functions. I mean, extra functions of the the, the thing. Uh, kind of like and also like for example, you know, fork. Like then uh, when I saw first time, like my friend like uses the fork as a kind of a knife. Like when he cuts like some kind of bread. Bread, uh, not bread actually, like the egg fry, like with a fork, not knife. It, it's kind of like in everyday life, like in quotidian, you know, like in in that kind of situation, it's also like a fork. It's not just a fork; it can be used as a another another kind of a function as well. So I'm 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 thinking in a way like kind of like a uh, smongdonian like a concept, like a potential can be applied to this this situation as well.
0: Yeah. And then, so what would be interesting is, you know, if people start using a fork to um, sort of cut things, uh, you know, and I do this too, we use the sort of the edge of the fork instead of getting a, a knife and, and having to wash a knife separately. Um, so, yeah, you you just sort of use the edge of the fork to, to separate things. Um, but if, if this starts to become like sort of a, a widespread practice, maybe fork manufacturers will decide to, um, changes the design of the fork so that it has a, a sharper edge and, and is better for cutting. Um, and so in this way, the, the distribution network and the way that the, the fork is used can feed back onto the design of a fork. Obviously, forks you know, have been around for um, thousands of years and are not really subject to a lot of uh, design change at this point. Um, but uh, it's always possible that, you know, that um, there can be that sort of feedback from the, the use of a technical object onto its design
2: yeah thank you.
0: yeah we're just having uh, for people listening back we're um having a bit of a discussion in the chat here about um, writing and you know whether you can learn how to write uh, and this this uh, reminds me of uh, in in Plato, I forget which dialogue um, actually I think it might be a, a couple of dialogues there's the the whole question of whether you can learn to be virtuous whether whether you can teach virtue um, and uh, um it seems to be, uh, I mean, there, there's some difficulty with either position because, um, of course, Socrates holds that virtue is a kind of knowledge of the good, um, that no one does um, something wrong voluntarily. You always do what you think is right, even if you might be mistaken in particular circumstances. Um, um, uh, so if that's the case, if virtue is a kind of knowledge, then it seems that it should be teachable, just like knowledge of geometry or whatever. Um, but then on the other hand, if you look at the actual practice of the people who claim to teach virtue, um, namely the sophists um, at, at that time, the results don't seem to suggest that the students of the sophists or even if we look at you know today, um, there doesn't seem to be a lot of evidence. The people that study ethics in university are like, you know, more virtuous than the rest of us. Um, um, so. You know what? It, why is it the case that this apparent form of knowledge doesn't seem to be teachable, or doesn't seem to be? Yeah, Socrates taught Alcibiades, for example, and he was like sort of famous as a um, as being non-virtuous in in the Greek sense. Um, uh, yeah. So, you know, like, why why is it that something that in in one respect seems to be a kind of knowledge uh, at the same time doesn't seem to be teachable? And it could be. Um, uh, I mean, this is just a suggestion on my part, but there, it could be that there's a role of creativity in whatever we want to call virtue um, in a way that like you you have, there are certain moral precepts that you can sort of appeal to or use as inspiration. But at the same time, you have to apply them to a concrete situation that was never sort of specifically set out in like, there's always more um, circumstances that you can take into account that were never sort of um, uh, foreseen when those rules were were set out so you have to be able to apply those rules creatively you have to be able to look at a particular circumstance and say like in this situation doing x is the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do um, uh, because of factors a b c um and uh yeah so there's a certain amount of creativity involved in in being virtuous and and creativity uh doesn't seem to be something that can be taught or um at least not explicitly taught in the way that um Uh, knowledge of geometry can be taught. Yeah, exactly. So, like, yeah, Kant's example of the, um, you know, the murderer comes to your door and and asks where um, his uh, victim is, and uh, Kant says, you have to tell him. Um, I think most of us would say that that's, like, a pretty terrible rule, if that's what your conclusion leads to. Um, And you should actually infer the opposite. You should use it as a modus tollens, and you should say that if the rule leads to this conclusion, then that Uh, is a refutation of the rule um so um yeah so uh here obviously a a certain amount of creativity of you know maybe lying is wrong in general but um there are circumstances in which lying is preferable to telling the truth um uh so yeah you have to you have to have some creative capacity to uh, analyze the situation and figure out what the uh, virtuous course of action is as opposed to just sort of um yeah, just sort of, you know, mechanically applying a rule that you already have uh, set for you, and and even in Kant, um, like something like the categorical imperative, whichever formulation you take, is is obviously a very general principle. Um, you know, treating people as ends and never as means, for example, doesn't tell you in like a particular situation what exactly you have to do. So that you have to have some, you know, actual uh creativity and thinking um to to understand like how are you going to apply this general rule to this specific situation okay so let's go on to the next bit uh if i can get a volunteer to read from the bottom of 177 up to the section break on 178.
3: i can read a little uh all of techniques cannot of course be reduced to the production of objects numerous techniques amounted and still amount to discovering processes that is organizing efficient action according to the postulate of praxeology. However, it is when technics encounters the object and shapes it, that it constitutes itself as a specific and independent reality able to surpass temporal and cultural barriers. Out of the vast Roman Empire, which was a masterpiece of organization across multiple domains, what has reached us in an active way is what was created as an object—aqueducts, roads, bridges, and houses. If all roads lead to Rome, It is because the Romans of antiquity have invented the construction of roads as stable objects, concretizing the techniques of communication, fast travel, commerce, and transportation, while formalizing the entire reach of the image of power whose seat was Rome, but which drew its sustenance from the provinces through the continuous circulation of things and human beings. This network of objects has survived the empire because it transcended through invention the particular finality of each of its actions and incorporated in nature.
0: Right. Thanks. So that's a much stor- shorter passage than the last one we read. Um, yeah, I think um, this idea of incorporating in nature. I think we can connect this to um, the passage in individuation, where he talks about the role of the technician as someone who has um, a relationship that with something extra social. Um, uh, so uh, I think when we were discussing that passage in uh, when when we read individuation, I think we um, talked about uh, certain West African communities where um, uh, metal workers are sort of a a separate caste. They live, like, outside the village. Um, You inherit this profession from your your parents um, uh, and they, like, marry within their their group and so on. Um, And they they have sort of um, uh, like um, semi-magical powers um, that other people don't have and so on. Um, uh, And part of the sort of Um, mystery that surrounds these metal workers is the fact that they precisely have this relationship to metal, this um, sort of elementary force or elementary component of the world that other people don't have access to. Uh, And so other people might have power uh, over over people. They might be able to command soldiers or uh, they might be rich or whatever, Um, but they don't necessarily have power over the natural world in the way that the metal worker does. Um, uh, And so here... Um, like in the case of the Roman the Roman, uh, um, uh, the Roman uh, sort of technical objects, the bridges and roads and aqueducts, et cetera. Um, again, there was this whole social organization that these um, objects were built to serve. The, the Roman Empire involved all sorts of um, distribution of grain and slaves and all sorts of uh, commercial objects and so on. Um, but that whole social organization has disappeared by now, uh, whereas the technical objects that um, that were built to support that social organization uh, some of them remain uh, uh, some of them are even still in use uh, if i'm if I'm not mistaken uh, um, um, and that's precisely because these technical objects are not sort of purely um, representations or incarnations of social um, relationships um, they they are they serve certain social functions. Um, they, uh, they are distributed according to certain social relationships, but at the same time, they point beyond society or the, the realm of the social. They sort of uh, appropriate certain powers of the natural world for social uses, um, and by doing so, they, they sort of bring something natural into the social, or um, uh, they they extend beyond the purely social into the natural. Um, so, yeah, I think it's the same type of relationship of uh, the sort of this extra social element that gets incorporated into uh, or connected up with a, a certain social arrangement uh, that allows for something like a Roman bridge to um, to exist for many centuries after the social arrangement in which it uh, was produced uh, no longer
1: exists. You know, the point about the connection to the extrasocial is really interesting. Um, I, after one of our recent sessions, I went back and looked at that section from, uh, I can't remember if it was from the same paper in volume two of um, Individuation, but right before he talks about surrealism, um, Simon Dunn is talking about poetry, like one of the few times he talks about it. And he says that, uh, can't remember the name of this Spartan poet he makes fun of, like Tertius or something like that. But he says that every poet is a ter- yeah, Tertius of his community, so sort of like a, an apologist for um, communal life. And I wonder if, uh, if Simondon would think that um, there's any form of art that could have this extra social aspect uh, that the technical object has. I mean, I guess... Um in a way that's still not entirely clear to me. Maybe he thinks surrealism has that uh that characteristic as well.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Um I mean my first thought is that um art objects incorporate some natural element or uh, well, certain art objects. Um you can think of like a sculpture. Um you take a piece of marble or um block of bronze or whatever, and you you uh you know, part of what you're doing is allowing this um natural phenomenon to sort of appear um, uh, as, as part of an art object so you're taking something natural and you're um, presenting it um, as a, an element of an art object um, but uh yeah there's bit about the um, the role of the um, the poet I mean uh, poetry is, or, or you know literary art in general uh, it has maybe a different function in the sense that you're not taking something natural and shaping it or forming it or, or whatever, um, in the way that sculpture does. Uh um yeah, and this this idea that uh poetry has um this sort of communal uh function that it sort of glorifies the community in which it exists. Um it makes me think of you know the way the Homeric poems, for example, um um uh I mean obviously we don't know exactly under what circumstances they were composed, but there's a good chance that they were um composed as like um uh, sort of glorification of a particular lineage of rulers and, you know, their claim to title and uh, their sort of legendary history and so on. Um, and they were probably recited at courts and 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 used as a sort of justification for the, the rule of, of particular uh, kings. Um, but at the same time, they, of course, have uh, a value that is sort of exceeds anything that is strictly sort of serving propaganda purposes of one a particular society that hasn't existed for you know twenty five hundred years or whatever. Um, uh, so this po- this poetic production, um, I don't know if exactly. It doesn't sort of incorporate the natural in the way that a sculpture does, but it it sort of reaches beyond beyond a certain um, social arrangement. Um, it it sort of has a, a a value that exceeds that social arrangement that it was produced to to serve, um, and and that's part of how it ends up being uh appreciated and and recognized as um as valuable in you know many societies that are very different from the one in which it was produced so yeah maybe there's there's like this whether it's you know an element of nature or or what exactly it is there's something that great poet great poets are able to capture that is not strictly related to the society in which they find themselves
1: yeah, I guess maybe this goes back to the kind of virtual reserve um, and Kant uh, thing that we were talking about earlier. Yeah, that's a good example. Like, you know, I mean, there were a lot of like really boring, like golden age Dutch paintings of middle class or, you know, wealthy Dutch people, um, which are uninteresting, but there are also paintings from that era. The ostensive purpose of which I guess was just to document somebody's property, but kind of failed to do that in an interesting way that makes them um, still worth looking at now
2: yeah
0: exactly that. I mean, people like um Rembrandt or whoever that um, like their um, probably their self understanding of what they were doing was yeah depicting some rich guy um, in a faithful way um, and capturing a you know a, a or you know faithful but in a in a flattering way. Um, capturing like their home environment and, or their office or whatever in a way that shows them as you know powerful and and wealthy and sophisticated and so on. Um, so like yeah, their their understanding of what they were doing is probably probably didn't have anything to do with like sort of eternal value or anything like that. Um, but at the same time, the these artworks um are are still things that we can appreciate uh, in a very different society hundreds of years later. Um and, and so, like, yeah, by by just having this sort of flattery function, um but at this like yeah, so having this flattery function, um, but at the same time capturing something that goes beyond the specific social arrangements that um that they are part of, um they they sort of have this value of being being appreciable in other social contexts. It makes you wonder also like what what elements of our society today might um might have like a purely sort of pragmatic function or a, a largely pragmatic function or might be used just to show off how rich you are or whatever, and, and seem not to have any sort of specific um, uh, sort of intrinsic artistic value. Um, you know, maybe hundreds of years from now, someone will, will be able to appreciate it in a completely different social arrangement and and find value in it that we don't necessarily recognize today.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. And it's kind of interesting to think about the difference between like um a- this is a bit of a tangent, but the difference between like the, uh, the old Dutch painting, which in some cases literally just kind of catalogs all the stuff that a guy owns, and the, you know, the work of conceptual art, which doesn't say anything about the owner, but is often more or less, um, whether it's intended to be used this way, just an investment vehicle for, uh, for a similar, similar type of person. <laughs>
0: yeah that's true yeah there's a whole world of like using art for money laundering um that is uh pretty pretty interesting but also pretty like grimy to uh, think about that you know you think of art as you know something uh that precisely has this um eternal value or this value outside of specific um like pragmatic purposes um uh but yeah so like some people will just buy a, a painting or some modern work of art and stick it in a warehouse and just like use it to. Uh, yeah for money laundering or hope that it appreciates in value and they can resell it um, um uh, and yeah so they're not like buying something because they appreciate its aesthetic worth um they're buying it because they want to use it to make money or to launder their money or whatever um uh but yeah like the production of these artworks um that even if they do end up in this sort of uh, i don't know gray market or this world of uh financialized art um th- those artworks might still be you know valuable artworks that people will appreciate hundreds of years from now even if they serve this um not uh very sort of aesthetically oriented function in our society but yeah maybe nfts will be like uh hundreds of years from now people will be like appreciating the bored apes or whatever
1: yeah it'll be right up there with homer and, <laughs> and dante <laughs> Yeah, and so, I mean,
0: this, uh, I'm joking about that, of course, um, but, uh, this idea of, like, the capacity for an object, uh, whether it's an aesthetic object or a technical object or whatever it is to, um, sort of exceed the social circumstances in which it is produced, I think, is, uh, is an important one, um, so in the case of technical objects, um, so this is maybe more obvious in the case of technical objects, because, of course, you have, like, um, think of firearms, for example, um developed in, uh, in, well, you have gunpowder developed in China in, I think, like the ninth or 10th century, um, but it's mostly used for, like, fireworks and, and sort of entertainment purposes, if I uh, remember correctly. Um, and then it makes its way to Europe, I think, by some obscure means. It's not really clear how exactly it gets to Europe um, and uh, then gets incorporated into weapons use. And, and so you have, uh, like, cannons uh, first, but then eventually... Um, portable firearms, um, and then uh, guns get exported all around the world, uh, even to societies that have very little contact with Western Europe. Um, you know, aside from the the trade that allows people to get guns, and uh, and of course that has huge impacts on like um, uh, you know the formation of states in different parts of the world. You know, the people that can get access to guns are much more able to um, uh, you know form uh, a military that can. Uh, conquer territory outside of, uh, outside of their home territory, for example. Um, uh, and, and so this, this technical object, uh, the gun is, um, uh, because it sort of incorporates this, um, uh, natural process of chemical combustion, um, and, uh, you know, the, the metalworking and all these other elements that have to go into it, um, this allows it to be sort of transported into, um, a variety of different social contexts uh, and societies that um, are very different from the place where it was created. Uh, and, and so this like diffusion side of things um, um, on the one hand, it, it sort of inserts the technical object into a social environment in the way that we talked about with the tractor, right? Where um, the, the social diffusion of the technical object feeds back onto the design of, of the technical object. Uh, but at the same time, it can, um, have a certain amount of independence from the the technical object as well. Uh, like in the case of the gun, where you have like uh, a whole array of societies with different social arrangements, um, different parts of the world, et cetera, that are capable of, um, uh, you know, taking this technical object and recognizing what uh, value it has for their purposes um, and uh, uh, using it to to, you know, for different ends. Uh, in all sorts of different circumstances, uh, and that's sort of independent of the specific functioning of that technical object. Um, so yeah, it's uh, there. Like both uh, both sides happen probably at the same time because uh, even with the case of guns, there are obvious adaptations to specific environments. Like certain guns don't work if uh, in in humidity, for example. Um, I think I remember reading about um, the rifles that the American military was using in Vietnam had uh, like they would get sort of warped by humidity which obviously is not great if you're in like a tropical country um uh uh, so like if you're using a, a specific type of gun in a specific uh climate or specific settings um you might need to adapt it to fit those settings even if the sort of core functioning of the gun um is uh is um sort of stable in in multiple different settings so you can have both things going on at the same time this sort of Diffusion and different social environments of one technical object and this feedback of the circumstances onto the um, onto the design of the technical object. Uh, okay, so we're at um, a section break and I had suggested we do a shorter session today. So, um, And then this next section will take us to the end of the part. Um, so I would suggest that we stop here for today, even though it's a little bit early, um, if that's okay with everyone. That works for me. <laughs> yeah,
2: sure. I'm okay with that too.
0: Yeah, so I think we should finish this part next week. Hopefully, um, it's about six pages, uh, and then conclusion might take two weeks. I'm not sure, one one or two weeks. So we have probably about two to three weeks left of the of the book. And uh, yeah, so we should think about um, what we want to read next after this. Um, so we had talked about reading um, um The Structure of Behavior. Um, so. People can take a look at that and see if they're interested in that. Um, but uh, yeah, otherwise you can make any suggestions uh, in the 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 channel on Discord, and and we can talk about that. Okay. Uh, so thanks everyone for coming out. Thanks for
1: your contributions and uh, a good discussion. Uh, and hope to see you next week.